Good evening, everyone. It's so interesting to to actually be in a process of preparing a talk. I know Pascal uh, last night just folded his notes. I probably won't fold my notes. Uh, But it, it really is that experience of this preparation, we keep talking about, you know, there is no future, be in the moment. And, you know, when, you, when one prepares a talk, there's, there's a lot of thinking that happens. There's a lot of reflection that happens. And, and imagining. And imagining, you know, the future. Imagining what's going to be said. So I will tell you right now, I have no idea. <laughs> and yet, there's a paradox. It's one of the things I love about Buddhist teachings and and just experiencing the Dhamma, it's it's full of paradox. So even though I don't know, there's 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 a confidence. There's a confidence there that uh that's that somehow some something of my sharing, of my understanding of the Dhamma uh, might be useful to you. There's certainly a confidence in in the teachings that I've received. And uh, it's it's really a it's a beautiful practice to uh, to be able to share them and to be in community in that process. So I I want to uh, start by just expressing my gratitude about that, and I was reflecting on um, just being with my two colleagues and the, the generosity, their generosity of being and just the the incredible joy um, that that mm, alights in me and uh, and being with all of you and and listening to you today and and your openness and willingness to to be present to share what's true for you i mean it's really it's funny how you know you, in your mind you can be in the middle of a hell realm and it's kind of a heaven realm too you know that we're we're in community together here, and how rare it is. Um, somebody in my small group today was saying that just how rare it is to be among spiritual practitioners who are in the LGBTQI community, and uh, how precious that feels. And uh, just very very aware of that. Very aware of that in looking at all of you and walking and moving around and just being, wow, we're, we're in community together. And we share a lot in common in our community, this community. And I was reflecting on that today. Like one of the things we share is the experience of, uh, of oppression, you know, of, uh, in, in ways that we may have experienced that, being, being in a member in this community, so to speak. You know, experiencing, what do I mean by oppression? Just not being seen not being respected, and all the many systemic ways that that also unfolds. And then the other thing I was reflecting on is that we're in community, and we're in a very diverse community, really. We're diverse by gender, by race, by age, uh, by so many aspects of um, uh, different cultural experiences, of class, race, sex, physical challenges or mental health challenges, disabilities. You know, there's, there's so many 
aspects of our humanity that we share and don't share. And in that intersectionality, we're, you know, we're sometimes in a position where um, where even among our community, we may experience more privilege in our culture, in our larger culture, than our LGBTQI siblings. And it's just something, I say that out loud because I want to acknowledge that, the truth of that. And we all experience that in different ways. Uh, And, you know, that may be coming up for you here in retreat, and it may not be. And there's no need to try to bring it up. The beauty of being on retreat is uh, we're really, we have this precious opportunity of attending tending to what's, what's arising, and really learning from that. So the, the reason why I want to share this piece about being in community is that um, I just want to share a little bit about my, my own practice uh, before I go into the main topic tonight, which is to, to talk about working with afflictive states of mind, difficult states of mind, challenging states of mind on retreat. So I'll just say that I have been reflecting a lot, you know, very much so, more so, um, since November, uh, on uh, the practice of non-harm and, and the Buddhist teachings of non-harm. And we talk about this at the very beginning of a retreat, you know, holding, taking precepts together and, and holding the precepts on retreat. Um, when, the, when the Buddha talked about the practice of non-harm in terms of awakening and liberation, one of the things he said is, you know, if we don't practice non-harm, if we don't engage in non-harm foundationally in our lives, it's like, it's like meditation is like, uh, it's like trying to reach liberation by rowing a boat that's tied up to the dock. You know, that's what the meditation will be, row, 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 but you know, we're still tied at the dock if we're, we're not actually engaging in investigating in, in, in the ethics of non-harm. Now, how that happens for each person, that's not, that's not, I don't believe that's for someone else to, to orchestrate. It's really for our own investigation. Um, but I know that uh, it feels so imperative for me personally. And, um, and not that it's new, and, and many of you, you know that the harm in our culture is not new, but it seems like it's, pretty escalated. And uh, I know for myself to be able to join with other um, Dharma practitioners in my small center and with uh, colleagues and friends, it's, um, it's been very powerful to practice and to actually look at ways that I hold privilege as a white person and, um, and to really look at that with some... Uh, energy and investigation and interest to really practice non-harm and learn about it. And it's been so, while I wish it didn't have to be, it's been so profoundly fruitful. And I will say that um, the Dharma, the practice, is so supportive of that. Like, I, I raise this because some of you you know, have said, you know, or brought up questions about, well, what about our lives out there? Or what, what does it mean to come and, you know, sit on a retreat when there's, there's so much happening in the world? And I know, um, excuse me, you know, like, 
um, in Pascal's talk last night, he was very pithy, you know, saying, you know, like just, you know, sitting and walking, you know, it leads to liberation. It's like, huh? You know, it does. I mean, and maybe some of you have experienced these moments where, where you'll just see something. You just see something so clearly that you hadn't seen before. And it, it stays. Like, you know, someone, someone today was just sharing about seeing the, the wanting mind, the mind that wants pleasure. I and mean, that's a really powerful insight. You know, because so often we're, we're just lost in that. We're just lost in reactivity you know, in, in some gross and subtle ways in our lives. So the beauty of being able to slow down, really slow down and, and shut off and turn off our, um, you know, the, the ways of our lives, which are important. They're not, they're not to be rejected. I mean, there's so many valuable things we, we do in the world. And, and those little, you know, machines that we use have, have some very useful uses as we all know. So, so here we are in retreat, and, uh, and how, do we, how do we work with these uh, difficult states of mind that arise? Uh, now sometimes the mind will, will just be like, they shouldn't be here. <laughs> you know, that they shouldn't be here. Um, this is just a, a little kind of funny example. Today I was um, back at... The, where the teachers are have housing and and we were all taking our little breaks and i I consider i m s very kind of like a hell realm just because i mean heaven realm <laughs> sometimes it's a hell realm <laughs> in in what's going on in one's mind, but in the sense of just that how caring the staff can be, and I know you know coming here both as a yogi and as a teacher, I've experienced um, a lot of that. I'm not saying that everyone experiences that, but just in my experiences, there's been just a lot of care, and the staff really work to care for for us as yogis and for us as teachers to really make it um, an environment that we can feel. Um, Supported in, supported in, and again, that may not that may not be your experience. I don't. I don't. I certainly am not trying to say everyone has the same experience. But for me, anyway. So I was just sitting in this chair, and um, one of those canvas chairs, and I had my cup of tea, and the sun was out. I was just really ready to enjoy myself, and there was a little tear in the chair when I sat down, just like a little one, and all of a sudden it was like. <laughs> And I just went down. <laughs> and my, my legs were kind of hanging there. And I just thought, am I going to have to say, Pascal, <laughs> are you over there? Because I didn't know if I was going to be able to get out of the chair because it kind of went pretty, pretty down. So, um, but I did get out. And, you know, I was just thinking like, yeah, even in, this, in, even in this place where there's so much care, there's so much care to one's needs. Like my mind had a little moment of like, how come they didn't notice that? in the chair. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Hmm. So, we really see our minds so, um, <laughs> in like a huge movie screen, you know, on retreat. And I know for myself, when I first started practicing, uh, I, I came because I wanted to feel good. I wanted freedom. You know, and I think I had a lot of, 
I, I mean, I was young, so in my 20s, when I first started uh, meditating in this tradition. Um, and uh, I wanted that freedom, and I had lots of ideas about how that would come about. And they certainly didn't include opening to difficult mind states. They really didn't include that at all. And in fact, when those mind states arose, I thought there was something wrong with my practice. I thought that um, I wasn't doing it right. And I remember one retreat where I spent, it was a week-long retreat, and I spent a good chunk of it, it seems like it was a good chunk of it, as far as my memory recalls, trying to get back to a one particular state I experienced in one sitting, which was really a profound state of peace. I mean, it, was, it went from head to toe. It was just this complete, sense of peace and I can't tell you how long it lasted it seemed to last for a little while and then what followed that was uh, the long the loss of it and the longing for it and all the thinking around it that something I needed to get back to that 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 was that was liberation and what what did I need to do in my practice to get there and no matter how hard I tried in different strategies, sitting longer or... Mm, noting my experience, not noting, all the, so many different ways. It just, the only thing that resulted in that was more um, judgment. Really, if I was going to be just direct about it, I think in some ways, even the core of it, it was kind of a... a Shame, uh, something wrong, something wrong with me. And it took, it takes a lot of patience. There's a, a lesbian poet named Audrey, um, I wasn't thinking of Audrey, Adrian Rich, who's had a poem called A Wild Patience Takes Us This Far. It is like a wild patience because we really, we really end up in barren landscapes sometimes, and it, it can feel so lonely. Um, it can feel, I see someone listening, I'm nodding, you know, it can feel so painful, and it can feel so much like there's this self that needs to fix it. And, and then, you know, you feel that flailing, because it doesn't, it doesn't really work. You know, it's a, what's the alternative? Well, Maybe one alternative is that we can be curious to these difficult mind states, that we can be curious about them, and that maybe we can even reflect on that, are, are they really me? Are they really me? Or are they experience? There's something that's happening in this thing we called me, this, this experience. And... What is it like to actually not reject experience? It sounds so simple, and it's really radical. If we really look into our minds, we're, we're rejecting experience all the time. I know why, because oftentimes we, we just want to feel good, and I don't mean to be, you know, sort of flip about that. It's deeply conditioned. And so actually it's so counter-conditioning to sit here 
to just sit here, period. And look, you know, I mean, here we are. You know, it, it, it takes so much courage. And I know for myself, I have said this earlier, I can't remember if I said it in the large group or a small group, but this is not what I would be reflecting on when I was sitting on a cushion, how courageous I was. Far from it. Far from it. Just wanted to figure it out. Just wanted to get it, you know. And, and there's, there's really no shame in that because what is it that we want anyway? Just the word that comes to me when I hear that question, there's a response and it's peace. That's what comes up in this experience, peace. So it seems again so counterintuitive to turn towards those difficult states of mind, uh, assuming that's going to bring us peace. Some of these uh, afflictive emotions are, you know, framed in um, in a category in Buddhist teaching some of you may be familiar with called the five hindrances. So lots of lists in Theravadan Buddhism, in Vipassana, lots of lists in this particular form of practice. And the five hindrances are, I'll just name them for you. They're, um, one is desire, the other is aversion, uh, the third is sloth and torpor, the fourth is restlessness and worry, And the fifth is doubt. Now, I may not be able to get through all of them. We'll we'll do our best with this. They're also called obstacles. And the Buddha uh, described them metaphorically in this way. He used the image of a pool of clear water that reflects our image in it. And he said, with sense desire present, it is as if the pool were infused with a dye whose color permeates the water. And it influences our perception, colors our perception. When aversion is present, it's like boiling water. We can't see clearly. We can't get near it. We're heated up and we're in a state of turbulence. With sloth and torpor, it's like the pool is overgrown with algae. And there's a stagnation of mind that prevents us from seeing clearly. With restlessness and worry, they're like the water where it's stirred up by the wind and our mind gets tossed by that, stirring up in that agitation. And with doubt, it's like a muddy water. We just can't see the bottom and everything is obscured. So these hindrances uh, come up, you may, they may sound familiar to you, um, they can come up frequently, often. Uh, in our practice during the day, during the night, (laughs) during your sleep. Um, They can come up, and they often do. And I like to think of the hindrances as doorways. They're really doorways to freedom, really doorways to liberation. Because when we can meet our experience without rejection and really, really explore it, not explore it with our thinking and evaluating, but explore it with direct experience, Something happens. Something happens with that. Something shifts. 
But it really is that it, 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 it comes from that place of commitment. Can I, can I meet this? Can I meet this just as it is? So I'd just like to speak about some of them and, and specifically and uh, see, see if it uh, is useful to you in terms of your own practice here. So desire is... There's so many ways desires can show up. Desire can show up in our, um, as a hindrance. Um, I want to just clarify, does that mean desire is bad? Not at all. I mean, we have desire for so many things in our life. For love, for connection, for peace, for well-being, for social justice, for climate change. For our loved ones to be happy and at ease, these are these are beautiful desires and wishes. I know Anushka just did a beautiful practice with you on uh, practicing in that way of offering our wishes of loving care uh, and well-being to ourselves and others. This is a very much big part of our practice. So this part of desire, this aspect of desire we're looking at, is really more like a, a kind of craving and um, the way the mind can get very obsessive about wanting the wanting mind I just noticed my hands start to go like this when I think of wanting so I think like "Mm, wanting, wanting, wanting Um, one of my teachers uh, Ajahn Suchito said when you really look into the face of that wanting mind it doesn't mean your own face he means more like energetically what would the face of that look like he said you know it's kind of like ugly, you know, it's like, it, it, it's never satisfied. It just wants, and it keeps going after what it wants. So it's, it's searching for fulfillment through some object, you know, whether it's entertainment in our stories or fantasies or, um, or maybe we want something else to happen. You know, it's not quite happening right here. You know, either the food isn't right or or something, you know, or we're not right, or the conditions aren't right, or, you know, sat here many times when the lawnmower is going, it's like, why are they doing, you know, mowing the lawn while we're on retreat? Well, you know, actually they have to mow the lawn. But, you know, it's, it's you know, this, this desire of just wanting it to be different. And we often miss, we kind of get, can get so caught up in that desire that we, that we miss all the aversion in it, that we miss the kind of rejection of what is, you know, we, and we can get caught in these ideas of if only then, you know, if only there were, um, I remember Joseph Goldstein talking about making this trip to India for a long, long retreat, and, you know, he said there was like the noise, the noise, and the, it was just, it was constant noise all night long, music playing all night long, and just saying, you know, I can't, I can't meditate, mm-hmm. And like when we when we don't investigate this wanting mind, we're run by it, we're driven by it, and we're even caught in the belief that somehow if we can just get the object of that desire, whatever it is, everything will be better, we'll be happier, happiness will be found. You know, maybe some of you have experienced what we call vipassana romance. I don't know if any of you have experienced that. Well, so far we've been on retreat. But where um, 
I had a funny experience of the Pastor moments. I was on a women's retreat. So here I am, lesbian, women's retreat. And I had a wicked crush on one of the male staff. It was like totally obsessed. It was like, wow. You know, it was really kind of interesting that that was happening. And, um, and you know, just, I just kept like, okay, and do my practice here and just watch it. Now, you know, even the Buddha said lust is one of the hardest things to to really work with because it so can take over the mind. But so just watching the thoughts or the fantasies. And, and the more I paid attention to it, first it was like really pleasant. I mean, it was a little confusing, but it was also, <laughs> well, there's something about it that's also pleasant. And, um, and then you just kept watching it. And then I finally sort of actually hit on this place of like, wow, this is really painful. This wanting mind is really painful. There wasn't any judgment in that. It was an insight. It's like, whoa. I never would have associated that with, you know, in my everyday thinking, with the experience of, of lust. And that same way, in the way I could connect with it so, so purely. And then it's interesting, you know, and with that insight, it, it disappeared. Um, but it wasn't like, you know, I mean, before that, I was kind of trying to make it go away, like, because of the shoulds, you know, this shouldn't happen on retreat, you know. So it was a number of years ago, and that's when I had lots of ideas about how things should be when I'm practicing. So that's, it's interesting. So if you're, if, you know, if you're noticing that there's what we would call the Vipassana romance where there's a, an attraction, you know, it, it just, you can just work with it. Just see, see what it's actually like. Like, what is the mind doing? And is it, is it kind of entertaining? You know? Just a place for the mind to be entertained. And I would really notice um, the, if judgment arises. I mean, a lot of times judgment can arise around our, our desire, our wanting, our longing. And then that may even be particularly painful in, in you know, the culture we live in where we've had from the heteronormative culture and message that our desire is bad. You know, it's pathological. So, you know, sometimes as we investigate, that can come up too. You know, how, how have we experienced that? It can be quite painful. Or maybe we begin to notice shame. Well, just, just shame for our bodies. You know, her longings, her beings. So much can come from just investigating. In this classical sense of looking at desire, it's really looking at how we get lost in it, though. It's really looking at how it can drive. It can drive our minds. And uh, another interesting kind of funny example, was uh, simple, but a good teaching for me. It can be in the lunchroom, you know, and you, you, just, you can just notice desire in your own mind and that longing or maybe even irritation uh, with someone in the line. Or I remember one time um, I was on a long retreat and periodically they'd bring in sweets and there was someone brought in some ice cream and it was like just all different kinds. It was on the back table and I was sitting in you know, a way back over here on a table and I was just noticing like the 
energy like going towards the ice cream and just you know at first i didn't notice it but my mind was totally judging people like look at that greed you know look at that greed going after the ice cream you know and then and then and then really what i started to notice was like i wonder if there's gonna be any left for me you know it's like i gotta get up there i gotta get up there um you know it's just oh there it is right there you know and just it's it's some ways it's really not personal we can just see how it drives the mind. Hmm. <laughs> so ways to work with it, really, to recognize its presence. And also to notice when it's absent. That's a really key place in practice. And we forget that sometimes, because we're onto something else in our minds. But you know, when these hindrances are present, they're present. When we bring our attention to them, they become doorways. We just start to investigate. Oh, what's happening here? What do I feel in my body? What's going on in my mind? You know, is there judgment around it? Is there a kind of a perseveration? Is there believing? It's like we really get caught in believing it's true. If I just had these conditions, then I could be liberated. You know, if I just didn't have any of this pain in my body, then I could really meditate. If they just had this right kind of food, if I didn't have a headache, you know, if the person next to me wasn't breathing in a way that really irritated me, you know, then, then I could. It's all these ideas and longings for feeling good. And when we don't see it, we get caught, we get lost. So the same goes for... Um, the same goes for aversion. You know, they, they're, they're related to each other you know, in terms of really noticing that mind that comes up of not liking, like really not liking. And uh, you, know, you might notice it in a you know, really strong way like, and kind of be shocked by it. Like, you know, here's this perfectly innocent person slowly walking in front of you and you, you just want to kill them. You know, it's like, move them, you know, hurry up. You know, or, oh, look at you. You know, you think you're such a great yogi. I mean, you, you start to see, like, this mind that is, like, so unbecoming, you know. And, and if we can kind of let go of, that's me, I'm bad, we, we start to really see, like, how aversion functions and how it, it creates turbulence and clouds our minds. It does come up. You know, another experience I had on retreat, there was a person who... Um, was in the dining hall and who was quite tall and a uh, different gender than me and um, was a tall person so had long legs and so you know, in my interpretation was taking up a lot of space and um, and you get to know a lot about me here aren't you <laughs> um, and you know and was eating like really slowly but with lots of sound to it and I just I just hated him. <laughs> it was amazing. I just so hated him. And, you know, then I would see him, not even in the lunchroom. It was just like, ugh, you know, just walking, you know. And, you know, at one point, um, he came through this doorway, and I, my heart just opened. It just was like, it cracked open. Like, there's just this moment of just seeing, like, whoa. I don't even know this being. 
I don't even know this being. My mind was caught in this story that it was believing. It was so powerful. I said, then I loved him, so. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what his gender identity was, but I'm guessing it was male. So aversion, it just, it just, it's just part of our human condition. It comes up. It's really, the problem is in the not seeing of it, not that it's arising. And that's the key piece. It's really the key piece. So if, if, if you can bring some interest and patience and maybe even some humor, because um, it does get kind of funny when you're in retreat, um, and then, you know, there, you know, there's this room to, to see it as part of our human condition and to see to see it, the emptiness of it, too. Now, you might be sitting there and saying, yeah, well, that's all well and good, but what about, what about what comes up, a story that comes up of something that's happened in my life or an interaction that I've had or, or a challenging relationship that I'm, that I'm in or a circumstance which I really felt harmed. So this is, this is a little meatier, isn't it, than seeing kind of how those projections happen here with each other on retreat. In some ways, it's the same application, though. It's really what, what's... We, it's so easy to be caught in the story. It's not to suggest that that story is meaningless. Please don't misinterpret. I'm not saying that. But for the sake of our liberation and being on retreat and really understanding, it's so helpful, and not just on retreat, but in our daily lives, it's so helpful to actually even go underneath the story and say, what's, how am I getting hooked? What's happening? What's happening here? Not from the place of analysis, but the, the, from the place of direct experience. So I, I know, you know, from, from that investigation with myself, sometimes I've just found like, wow, this, this hurt. You know, so it, it might feel like it might come out like in anger and, you know, they said this and, you know, I said that and I want to say this and I'm going to say that and, you know, this was unfair and, and it, it may well be, but even though that may well be true, you know how you go over the story over and over and over again, kind of wanting a different ending, or this is what I'm going to say, or this is what I'm going to do. And after a while, you realize it's just, it's just a spin. It's just, there's no end to it. It's just a spin. So, and then it can spin into, like, I shouldn't be doing that. I shouldn't be feeling angry. Like, this is not the Buddhist way, you know. And, you know, anger is not okay and it's wrong and something to get rid of. It's like, what? You know, anger... It's an emotion. It's an emotion. It's a human emotion. And it, it comes in relationship to our experience with life. So can we, again, you know, in those stories, even just kindly and gently saying, okay, the story, the story's happening right now. It's not to dismiss it, but can I investigate a little bit more underneath the story? Can I see, can I maybe come to the body, see what's happening in the body? Ah, oh, agitation, you know heat, burning, fear. I know sometimes when I really investigate anger, you know, in a situation, particularly where I feel like I haven't been seen or harmed, there's a lot of fear, fear of loss, fear of loss of that connection. But even more to the point, I just said fear of loss of that connection, to even hone it down to just, ooh, can I just feel the fear? I just, and it might be that you just, you can really truthfully just touch the edge of it, just a little edge, like just feel it for a second. 
and then and you, you might find yourself just needing to move away from it or, or your mind moves away from it or, or there, there, maybe there's a little bit more strength of uh, steadiness of mind that happens over the course of a retreat so you're actually able to be with it a little bit more and it, it can sometimes feel like it can feel like you're it can feel like one is like burning up or, or dying even. Like when we really meet a difficult emotion, when there's enough strength of mind to do that, it, 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 has, its, it has like this wave of just pure energy. And if we can be with that unpleasantness, with as much steadiness and compassion in our hearts... You know, we we see into it. it. It becomes no longer an enemy or something to get rid of or something somehow deficient in ourselves. And if you're listening to this, you're saying like, yeah, no, I can't even go near it. Then to really... Respect that to be just don't don't get married to I can't go near it because everything changes all the time. We think we know, we have these ideas, and then you know you know from sitting you know two days now, it's you know it's all changing, including our perceptions of what's happening. So there's this invitation to come closer towards what we think shouldn't be there or what we don't want to be there, and to be with it to allow it its own life and death, you know, in the moment. That's liberation. Got through two of them. <laughs> Let me say a few things about um, sloth and torpor. It's kind of like a sluggishness in our mind, or it can be also in the realm of sleepiness. Not, not to, you, oftentimes in the first few days of a retreat, sleepiness is very common. So, um, you know, sometimes the best aspect of that is just to be able to be some patient with oneself, and perhaps even get curious about the sleepiness. But another way sloth and torpor, as it's the English translation of these poly words, um, can manifest is just like, eh, you know, just kind of coasting along, or even just even like, you know, backing up in a chronic kind of way, where... Um, just don't really want to bother. I don't know, it's hard to find the exact words for it, but it's, it can also be experienced as like a retreating from a difficulty, from difficulty. Uh, sort of like lethargy. It can come out like lethargy. It's like, a, like an ongoing hitting the snooze button on the alarm. 
Some of the things that can really help, we've talked about them already, but just reminders of help meaning, uh, why do I say help? Is sloth and torpor bad? No, but it can become like a pattern, you know, or it can be a default mode, maybe sometimes even a default mode in our lives. So, you know, one way, if we, we feel like, no, I want to I feel more awake. I have this, in, this is a, you know, the retreat is a short amount of time. I have this intention to be more awake. So kindly and gently, but with effort, too, you know, with perseverance, you might do things like open your eyes. You know, to start to notice the sloth and torpor, you know, just open your eyes, stand up. You can also give yourself a four-point awareness of, you know, in your mindfulness practice. So instead of like saying just paying attention to the breath or just to sound, you can say go from um, contact with the cushion, connecting with that contact, connecting with the breath, connecting with sound, and maybe even, if your eyes are open, connecting with seeing, just seeing form and color. And you can kind of cycle through that. And that can help wake up the mind, sort of give the mind a little more energy. Generally, sloth and torpor, that the, the, it's, it's an, there, there can be a lot of concentration there, but not enough energy. So or you maybe want to go for a fast walk, or, you know, it's, it's energy that will change. But again, we can also bring that judging mind to you know, the experience of sleepiness or uh, a lack of energy. It happens. We go through different energetic states. Um, and restlessness uh, and worry are kind of the, the flip side of that, where there can be, like, you can feel like a lot of agitation. And one of the ways that manifests, not necessarily, sometimes, oftentimes physically, but also mentally, like where your mind is like, it's busy. It's busy, it's trying to figure out a lot, it's trying to, trying to sort things, settle things. It will go from one thing to another, have a lot of commentary. Um, could be like a lot of judging thoughts coming in the mind. That's, generally, that's restlessness. So when that's happening, when we can kind of just notice like, oh, this is restlessness. This is just restlessness. This is one of the hindrances. Oftentimes, just in the seeing, it starts to transform. You know, and it may not be like, okay, I noticed it, it didn't transform. You know, it may be that we're, we're noticing it, you know, patiently, kindly being with it as it is, because it has its own life. It's not, it's not on our timetable. You know, they're energies. Really kind of the way you're talking about it, these two energies. And with restlessness, it's usually that there's a lot of energy, but not enough concentration. So another way you can attend to that restlessness, it's interesting, there's almost, there's almost opposite suggestions how to work with restlessness. One is to come, to come in more carefully, to get even more refined of paying attention to a sensation of a breath or, um, or, or noticing sound or, or ways that you may feel, feel your, you know, just bring your attention in more closely and in a more refined way. Or it could be that it just needs a wider berth and you, you, know, you give yourself like a longer walk or a faster walk. So you can really explore that for yourself as a way to work with it. But notice one's relationship to it always. Just is there a relationship to it of I got to get rid of this, I want to get rid of it. And if that's there, just notice it. It's like, oh, so here's restlessness and worry and then here's aversion to it. When I heard my first talk on the hindrances, I was just—I remember I raised my hands like, "Well, what if you have all five of them all at once?" <laughs> Jack Cornfield said, "You know, then it's time to go get a cup of tea." 
So the last one is doubt, and it's 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 um, it's spoken about as as being um, the most slippery of all the hindrances because it's it's hard to see. Doubt is hard to see. Um, but it, it can it, it's 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 slippery manifestation. It can arise in like something like, yeah, this practice isn't for me. You know, it's, you know those aren't you know those teachings aren't don't work for me. Or um, I'm not really any good at this. Or um, mm, trying to think of how else doubt it, it just can it, it arises in so many ways of where. You're, you're convinced that what you're listening to is really the truth, and there's no, there's no awareness that it's it's doubt, like grabbing hold. Um, and there's a different, there are different kinds of doubt. There's there's doubt that uh, there's a healthy aspect of doubt when we're not sure. It's like uh, Pascal was saying last night. You know that the beauty of what the Buddha offered was, you know, don't don't take my word for it. You know, investigate for yourself. So there's that healthy doubt where, wait a minute, I'm not so sure about this. I need to check it out for myself. I mean, that's, that's very, very useful. But the other doubt, the kind of slippery doubt, is it kind of leaves us in this disconnect. And I just, be, just invite you to explore that, noticing how doubt manifests. Uh, I also have found it so liberating, just noticing like, oh, that's doubt. You know, because it, it can also be so unsettling. You know, like you can't really land. There's no place to land. You know, and with all of these hindrances, there is there are the opposites. So one of the opposites of doubt is is faith, and that faith, you know, it's not it's not faith that it, it's it's called verified faith. It comes from our experience. It's not believing in something. There was a question that came up in the hall in the Q and A's yesterday about, you know, how has uh, this practice, you know, affected you or impacted you over time, and uh, that came to me later uh, after the, you know, it, it's it's actually this confidence. It's like a confidence that I can rely on mm, the refuges, if you will, the refuges of what we call the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, you know, the refuges of, wow, it's, it's truly possible to awaken the mind and heart. It's truly possible, you know. It's been done by many, many people. It's a practice that um, is verified. And so that's one refuge, you know. And the other is the refuge in just being able to be present with what is. There's something so profound in that. And it's not passive. It's not passive. Um, I remember when, when after 9-11 happened, there was so much trauma and agitation. And I was taking my dogs for a walk, and I just looked at my two dogs at the time. I was like, wow, they don't know this happened. They don't know this. And something just flipped there. Like, just, like, I can, I can... I can be with, I can be with it. I can be with it. And so many times, you know, um, Buddhist practice can get misinterpreted. Somehow that being with it means passivity. In my experience, it is so, so the opposite. It is so the opposite that actually being with, actually having the courage to be with, 
to attune, to attune with careful attention, with loving kindness, has so infused my life with the courage to also act. I will not say to you I do it perfectly, but I will say that 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 foundation of of this Dharma practice has really strengthened how I am in the world and how I am in relationships. It's such a refuge. And the third, here we are, the third Sangha community. You know, it's it's essential. I mean, to to be able to share with a like-minded other, it's so... It doesn't have to be someone who's Buddhist. It's, you know, someone who you, you can trust and who has some understanding at that level is such a profound support. And we're really offering that to each other here. I know I said this yesterday, I'll say it again, just by being here, just by being here, no matter where your mind is, no matter what suffering is happening or what joy is happening, just the presence, just holding the space for each other is such a profound gift. Think of the world we live in. It is such a profound gift. We all know how much the world needs this. The world needs this care and wisdom. And if we can't find that, the way to work with all this challenge within ourselves, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know for me personally how I could be in the world, really. But you will, you are on your own journey, and uh, I hope that um, there's something in what I've shared tonight that can be useful to you uh, in your practice over the next few days. And thank you for the privilege of of being in your presence. Mm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.